everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 166 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Also brought to you this week by Acoustic Disc, which just released Dogworks Volume 4, which is incredible. And what is even more incredible is if you go to Acoustic Disc now, and by any of the Dog Works volumes, you get a copy of Happy Birthday Lloyd Lore. And what that recording is, is the unique recording was made in celebration of the 100th birthdays of two of Dog's Lloyd Lore F5 model mandolins, Parrot and Crusher. And it's available only as a gift with a purchase of any of the Dog Works series. So do it. I've got it. It's incredible. And also speaking of incredible, Grace Design Preamps. I used my Grace Design preamp just this past weekend with a uh, with one of the reissue Neumann KM184s, and it was incredible how good it sounded. And uh, I, I there's a reason why some of the best acoustic players in the world plug their instruments or microphones into Grace Design preamps. You need to check them out yourself. So thank you to Grace Design. Hope everybody is doing well. We're into the new year now. My guest this week, Lawrence Smart. What a cool guy to talk to. Um, and what's really cool about this one is I interviewed Joe, and I'm going to be interviewing Wayne Fugate, which I talked to him on Sunday, and he has got this new study on practicing. I, I can't wait for you all to hear this interview. We're going to be doing it next week. What a, what a great guy Wayne is. And he was singing the praises of Lawrence as well. And let's talk to Lawrence and Lawrence worked it out. We just talked actually this morning. It is Friday the 13th. Spoke with Lawrence today, did some light editing, and on to this episode. Before we get into this episode and the sponsors, though, I want to bring up my buddy Jake Howard's band, Westbound Situation. I talked about it last week. They've got a Kickstarter for their brand new album. Now, if you're not a musician who plays and puts out recordings, it is not inexpensive to record music. The whole process is really, really expensive. And now with streaming, it's great. Anybody can hear it, but you really don't make any money on record sales. So Kickstarters are really important because it helps them recoup some of the costs. And this album's incredible. Jake is such a great guy, does so much for the mandolin community. He's a great player. He's just the nicest guy. He's got the greatest collection of mandolins. He's got some beauties. He lets you check him out. He's so sweet. And he does all those incredible transcriptions that he puts on his Patreon and, and Mandolin Cafe for free as well sometimes. So if you uh, i have got a song here to play, a brand new single. It's going to be at the end of this episode. It's called Orca. It's incredible. So if you want to support Jake and his band, also I've met, met Grant Flick multiple times. Grant Killer killer player and again this recording is incredible so go to the kickstarter and have the link in the description it'll also be at mandolinsandbeer.com but go out and support this project support jake and grant and the rest of westbound situation in this incredible recording you guys it's it's really it's money well spent i say so if you got some extra cash and you can afford to kick in kick in and help these guys realize their musical dreams so stick around at the end of this episode and you can check out the entire track orca all right, let's get into the sponsors. Peghead Nation with Peghead Nation streaming video courses and mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players, instructors in Roots Music. 
Who? Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning, and Ian Curry. As a matter of fact, Chad Manning's our mandolin and fiddle, and he just put out a Western swing fiddle course on Peghead Nation. And as you know, fiddles and mandolins are tuned the same way. So if you want to learn some of that Western swing stuff, swing on by Peghead Nation and sign up for Chad's course. And here's the best part. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. You get your first month for free. Go to PegheadNation.com, use the promo code MandolinBeer at checkout. That's MandolinBeer, all one word. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at NorthfieldMandolins.com. Download their app at MandoSummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Pava Mandolins, built in Austin, Texas, and dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Thank you to Pava Mandolins and Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now in their 50th year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com. And Roger Simonoff and his incredible books and strings, straight-up strings and Roger's books. We talk about Roger Simonoff's book in this episode with Lawrence. And if you want to build yourself a mandolin, you can get 10% off on his incredible bluegrass construction manual if you go to straightupstrings.com and use the promo code MANDOBEER, all one word, all caps at checkout, and you can get 10% off everything on the site. That is a great deal. All right, y'all, let's get into this episode with Lawrence. We'll lead in with a little Joe K. Walsh playing his smart mandola. Cheers, everybody. Stick around for the westbound situation at the end of the episode. Now it's my honor to have on the podcast, Lawrence Smart. Lawrence, how's it going? Oh, man, I'm doing good. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Man, yeah, thank you for doing it. Um, I was telling you right, right before we started hitting record, it really worked out. Like I have like this giant list to my left here on on yellow notebook paper that is like the never-ending list of of guests I'd love to have on the podcast. And, and I try to every now and again when something lines up right, it's cool to have like a theme and it really worked out having Joe who just put out his uh, killer album and, and played one of your mandolas on it. And then uh, Wayne Fugate, it was going to be doing an episode and he, I talked to him on Sunday and he couldn't give you a big <laughs> enough rigging endorsement. And I'm just like, this is perfect timing to, to reach out and it worked out perfectly. So thank you for doing it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Like I say, it's my pleasure. And um, it's awesome. I'm psyched to have people like Wayne and Joe use my instruments, of course. Man, your your artist page on, on your website is literally like a who's who of incredible musicians. <laughs> that's that's like that's like it's gotta be the best business card in the world right there when you look at that. It's yeah, well that's one thing that's been a real uh, you know, dare I say blessing about this career is you get to cross paths with people that are uh both amazing people and amazing musicians and yeah it's been a real it's been great to be able to work with all those people and then i mean 
you know, John Reichman, just the king of tone, you know, to, to have somebody like that. Like, it's just, that's so cool. <laughs> well, thanks. He's a, he is the king of tone and, and just the greatest guy in the world too. Now, how did you, how did you, now, did you play mandolin when you grew up? Was, was music, obviously music must've been a part of your life at some point because you're building instruments, but how did you get into the, the, the woodworking portion of it? I, you know, for me, I think it was a, a combination of, uh, being really busy, um, maybe hyperactive a little bit <laughs> and, and just curiousness. And so, um, really the, I think that the root of the story was I grew up in Salt Lake city and there were two things in Salt Lake city that were going on at the time. And one was the violin making school of America, uh, was there and really I think it was considered to be the best violin making school in the world at the time and um, so I got to be friends with some of the students there I actually played old-time music with them and, uh, and one of the guys I probably shouldn't mention his name because he got actually kicked out of the violin making school because he made an instrument at home oh no way <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty pretty staunch, and I think the way that they, it was arranged that all the work that you did while you were there uh, belonged to the school. But um, anyway, I was at this guy's house. He was a, a guy I played music with, and he was uh, he had finished his violin, and he was smacking it with bicycle chains uh, <laughs> to dent it and, and uh, basically antiquing it, which is super intriguing. But uh, And when I played this instrument, it was cathartic. I, I could not believe how alive and how soulful and how amazing it was. I'm not a great, you know, technician of playing the fiddle, but um, it was palpable. So that was one one thing that was like kind of an eye opener. And then, equally, a lot of people that are uh, in the acoustic instrument world might know of a store that was in Salt Lake, still is, kind of called Intermountain Guitar and Banjo. Uh, where they've sold a lot of uh, vintage instruments through the years. But I was, I sp uh, spent a lot of time kind of hanging out in their shop um, <laughs> till I'd get run out by, by Leonard Colson, who's a dear friend of mine. Uh, and he's also one of the greatest restorationists I can imagine. Um, anyway, he, uh, he'd run me out of that place. Uh, but in the meantime, I would, they sometimes sell me junk instruments, uh, which I would, take apart and <laughs> and sometimes put back together so in a nutshell that's kind of a long story but that's the root of i think of my interest um and then at some point um sort of the vibrating string thing uh <laughs> just the the cosmicness of this vibrating string that excites a piece of wood or pieces of wood that uh amplifies this thing just as just this wild concept that is still i love i love the idea of it had you had like experience with you know when you're getting these these um older instruments from the store that are like you know damaged or beat up like how were you figuring ways to try to fix them were you using well, you know was the internet much was it even a resource yet at that point or were you using books <laughs> Al Gore hadn't even invented the internet <laughs> at that point. Uh, <laughs> this was in the seventies, uh, the 1970s. And so, yeah, there were some books on, on, I think that Don 
Teeter. There's a few repair books about uh, um, repairing instruments that were out there. So I had that, and I was just sort of seated in the pants also. I wasn't necessarily in those days really restoring these instruments and making them super viable. Uh, but it was just intriguing. And uh, <laughs> but no, there was not a lot of information on the Internet in those days. It really just blows my mind. Just, I mean, obviously the internet in, in the grand scheme of history and things being invented is is like a tiny little fraction of stuff. But you know, it's you just become so accustomed to how easy it is to look up anything online. You know what I mean? Like I had to fix my washer the other day because the knob broke off. <laughs> I found my exact washer <laughs> and and um part I had to order and how to install it for the wall. There's got to be a thousand of those videos, you know, and that's a pretty simple thing, you know. That's that's great. Um, but I think you there must have been something about the um, something in your brain, though, that really resonated, because like you said, you like you, this this instrument that was being relicked <laughs> for for lack of a better word with a bike chain, something about it. You knew it sounded great. Well, there was that, and I, you know, it kind of goes back to just music in general, and and sort of being uh, attracted to and connected, you know, having no choice but being connected to music. Uh, but yeah, so I'm not sure how to exactly say. Well, I mean, I guess maybe uh, going back in history too, there was another sort of life changer for me that got me involved was, uh, and this is about loving the music as, as a teenager, I heard about this great party that happened in this little town in Nowheresville, Idaho. <laughs> and so I went to, uh, Weezer, Idaho as a teenager, not being a, a folk musician, uh, and then was so turned on by the fiddle. I don't know if you know what Weezer have you heard of Weezer? The yeah, Weezer Fiddle I have, yes. And for those who are listening, it's not the uh, alternative band, Weezer, either. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a really cool fiddle event, I guess you would really call it kind of an, an event. It is. It's the, a, a major sort of jamming scene in the western part of the, the country. Uh, and anyway, I went there and heard music I'd never heard before and, and felt the power of, of this roots music and and I literally came home from that and, and got myself a fiddle and uh, continued to thrash on that for <laughs> <laughs> continually. But uh, <laughs> when did you, um, did you, then did you start playing mandolin too? Yeah, I kind of got, got to start playing mandolin at the same time. A friend of mine that uh, I had some high school friends that would, you know, play guitars and jam together and, uh, someone gave me a mandolin. It was a Portuguese-style mandolin, and that was sort of my first instrument that you know I really sort of learned anything about. But uh, <laughs> so this is stuff I haven't thought about in a while. And then, who were some of the people that you were listening to? I know you're saying like some old-time music. Were there were there any particular artists that you really enjoyed? Well, some of the – yeah, the, in those days was like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were kind of the, the people I was way into the birds. But the game changers was uh, Willis Circle Be Unbroken, um, you know, was coming out. And that was that was really a game changer. And 
just hearing of some of those people that for the first time really who were you know iconic american roots musicians was awesome and then older in the way kind of was coming out at the same time so uh both of those i think opened a lot of my generation's eyes to that kind of music what was the first instrument that you built then what's the when you were like okay from scratch now i am going to attempt to build and what, what was it when i was in college i made a fretless banjo oh wow <laughs> yeah uh well actually i made a dulcimer from a kit before that so i don't know if that counts yeah absolutely but, uh, so i made a little uh lap dulcimer appalachian dulcimer and then in college just from uh scratch and with some help with the college wood shop i made a uh a uh, fretless banjo um, so I later ended up trading to a guy for a tent. <laughs> really? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it was a nice four season, uh, you know, mountaineering tent. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's great. Do you still have the tent? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he still has the banjo. Not even. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've wondered that sometimes. But, uh, anyway. What, what was the point where you just decided you know what, did you, did you start working at a shop doing repairs? Did you just decide, ah, oh, you know, I'm just going to go for it. What was the, the next step that started you on this, on this career path? Well, I went to college to, uh, to be a special ed, um, teacher. And so I worked at a couple different school places in Idaho for just for five years as a teacher. And at that point I, I sort of realized that I wasn't as dedicated as the teachers that I really admired. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I sort of had this dream. So I applied to take a year's leave of absence and I went to a guitar making school uh, in Vermont. Uh, it was called, at the time it was called the Vermont Instrument Workshop. And George Morris was the, uh, the teacher. And I think he's mentored a lot of people. Uh, and that was a really good experience because it sort of, uh, you know, gave the bar of craftsmanship, or or just gave a good a good example of what craftsmanship can and should be. And uh, so, I really appreciate that. Um, and like I say, there wasn't a lot of uh, other information in those days, so I kind of just came home and and uh, went for it. Uh, after that, and. Here I am a zillion years later. Where did you like source the wood then at that point? Because again, you know, you can go online and buy tone woods now, but was there like magazines at the point or were there resources for you to be able to buy, you know, tone woods and different things? So um, living in Idaho and, and I was, I would go to the Weezer Fiddle Festival every year. I met a guy at Weezer named Bruce Harvey. <laughs> oh yeah. And I imagine a lot of your uh, listeners would, recognize that name he uh was one of the very very early tone wood cutters and uh, he took me with him because he'd go he'd come to idaho and cut engelman spruce and so we'd go out in the woods and uh and harvest wood he basically showed me how to do it and then i lived in the area so i spent a lot of time looking for trees and and you don't really go out into the forest and look at a tree and say, that looks like a good one. <laughs> um, one out of every, you know, 300 trees is even worth like looking at closely because you can tell that it has too many limbs or, or whatever. Um, 
And we were actually looking for blown uh, trees that had blown over. So we weren't cutting down live trees to see if they were uh, good. But anyway, that's how I got the spruce that I, I started with. And uh, in those days, there were violin um, wood suppliers. So that was a good source for the, the maple uh, and, and even some of the guitar woods, the more tropical woods would come from places like that. Um, and in, in the process, you know, I used to use a, or when I first started out, um, big leaf maple from the Northwest was available and, and sort of more local to me. So I used that as I evolved in my building, I decided pretty early on that I liked the Northeastern maples a lot better. <laughs> so that's primarily what I use. What is it about the, what was the difference for you that you, that you seem to like better? Was it like the tone, the ease of working with it? You know, I, maple's a hard, hard wood to work with. I, I, I believe just from what I've read, I mean, I've never built anything. So. Uh, yeah. Maple's pretty hard. Well, it was first off, the first time it was kind of accidental, uh, maple, curly maple, you know, is is milled into boards or lumber, if you want to say in the, the, Northeast mills quite often. So somehow I had a board of uh, this kiln dried slab sawn uh, Eastern maple. And I was making a batch of instruments and I thought, I'll use this for one of them. And the instrument was just superior. And not only that, but the wood, uh, the Eastern wood has sort of more of a creamy texture, less fibrous maybe than than a big leaf maple and it is often a little slower growing as well so it just was just the quality of it just really caught my attention and and uh, as i you know got got into it that's more what i was searching out and um, but as a uh, instrument maker the wood search is always you know a pleasure and and fun and i think we're most of us are obsessed uh <laughs> with wood we love it it's amazing i listened to an interview you did that is on youtube where you went out into the woods with the the person interviewing you and you're knocking like you're you mentioned <laughs> like yeah there's not many branches so there's not you know this tree's taller so there's not a lot of branches so there's not going to be imperfections in the wood but then you knock on it to get the tone and it's amazing to hear like even over a microphone, you know, like in the woods on a <laughs> mini recorder, like you can hear that there's a tone in there. And like, it's, it just blows my mind that that's just out there in nature. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that is, you can walk up and knock on this thing that's been growing for years and be like, I can hear the instrument in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of one of the really lovely things about, about this business is paying attention to all those, all those senses. Uh, but yeah, that was a that was I remember that uh, that radio piece that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was really interesting, man. I, it's you know, and you could hear your love for it. Like I can hear it in your voice now, which is really cool. But I was maybe even more excited to talk to you. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be great. Like, this guy is passionate about what he does. I have no idea how you could find that uh, thing. I'm a, <laughs> I, I, I do some, I do some deep digging. <laughs> it's, I'm going to link it though, because it really is a cool, it's a cool piece. And it's only like seven or eight minutes long. So I'll definitely, I'll post a link to that so people can check it out. Cause I, I mean, I find it, I've always wanted to be able to build a mandolin. And, and I think part of it came from the same thing that you had mentioned 
I I don't know if it was in that interview, if it was in uh, uh, another interview I might have found while doing some research. But I also was at the point where I couldn't really afford a nice mandolin at the point where I was really getting into mandolin. I'm like, well, shoot, man, maybe I could maybe I could build one. But then, you know, at that point, I'm like, holy cow, you you know, you start looking at all the stuff and I'd. I uh, looked at one of Roger Simonoff's books at the tools you need. And I'm like, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll just keep practicing on what I have <laughs> eventually. <laughs> so, but I do have the dream to build one someday. That is for sure. Oh, I hope you do. Yeah, me too. I find it enthralling. Just the, uh, you know, I've been able to go to Tom Ellis's shop and, and Lynn Dudenbostel's shop and, and to see just the, uh, you know, to, to see the stacks of wood and, you know, to watch Lynn be like, yeah, I just got this piece, you know, at like a, you know, somewhere weird where you wouldn't expect to get it. And he's tapping it. And I'm just like, that is so amazing. Yeah. I know. I, I love that aspect of the, the wood coming from different places. And um, I've got some red spruce that came from someplace in North Carolina called the Maggie Valley that I guess this wood is people know about it, but it's so fun for me to think about. So just, you know, the location of the wood, the geography of where it came from and, uh, anyway, just a little off subject, maybe, but yeah, no, not at all. Where, where's the um, the what's where's is, have you gotten like a piece of wood any place that was like really strange, like you know from from an old house or you know like some something you didn't expect or somewhere you didn't expect? Um, well, I mean, one thing like that you've talked about. I had a friend that was a, a rent, you know, remodeler, and he gave me some um, some mahogany boards that were installed in a building in the probably the teens or the twenties. And uh, I made a couple of guitars out of that, and <laughs> that was sort of a fun, fun thing. And another thing that comes to mind: I was traveling in Belize just for pleasure a number of years ago, and um, a friend of mine told me to look up a friend of his that was down there, and he gave me some uh, some wood that I brought home. Not 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 very much, just little pieces that I could use for head plates or pick guards and stuff. And I was really psyched about that. Just it was a, a fun, fun little score. And uh, but yeah, I guess I don't know. There's there's probably more wood stories. Now, when was it? When did you attempt your first mandolin build? So you mentioned you know wanting to build a mandolin because you wanted a better mandolin, or want to build a mandolin because you wanted a better mandolin. Um, that was sort of my experience. I was at the guitar building. Um, school in vermont and you people were to build uh, at least two instruments and uh i was way into playing mandolin at the time and so uh and i had a really nice steve carlson signed uh, flat iron a model oh nice yeah but i decided to make a mandolin at that school so i used the simonoff book <laughs> and uh and made my first mandolin there and uh so that was the start of that. And and mandolin sort of just became a direction I really enjoyed going in. And, and even more so, the mandolin family has been, uh, you know, maybe you know that about um, sort of the stuff I've built. But I've built a lot of the larger mandolin family instruments. What's really cool on your website, which, by the way, is lawrencesmart.com and people should go there i mean it's it's really great but the fact that you can actually order a quartet of instruments from you <laughs> to be built that's that's really really cool um yeah i've built a, a handful of quartets i can i can count them up but uh 
it's been a really fun, fun sort of exercise um, in trying to create, you know, an ensemble of instruments that works harmonically and supporting each other. And, um, the first one I did, I actually, I got a grant from the Idaho Commission on the Arts to, uh, to do it. It was a really nice, nice grant. So I figure I was pretty early in my career and, uh, I made this, uh, sort of, they looked like tuxedos. They were all black faced and, uh, and whatnot. And I, I was able to take those instruments around and, and, uh, I guess exhibit them at things like IBMA and uh, some luthier conventions and stuff. And uh, that kind of got a nice, nice ball rolling in terms of, of that. And um, yeah, since then I've made a handful of matched quartets for just people. <laughs> That's also something you don't really even think of, I guess, you know, like when you, when I think of like old mandolin quartets, you know, I think of like, some guy who lived in wherever, you know, I was from Michigan. So, you know, some guy I was born in a little place called Bay City. And I'd be imagined be like putting a classified ad and some guy from Lansing be like, I have a mandocello. You know what I mean? It's all these mismatched <laughs> instruments. But the fact that, you know, that they're actually built at the same place at the same time really blew my mind. It, the sonic possibilities that that would really that would that could come from that. Yeah, it's really fun. On you know, early on, I would like try to use uh, matching woods, <laughs> thinking that was a good way to match them. But <laughs> the last couple of them, I, I selected the woods uh, based on the tone that I wanted them to to produce. So, and, and I think that's a little more successful from a sonic standpoint. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's been a real kind of fun uh, project that I've been able to do. I love it. And what is it about the larger bodied that, that seems to draw you towards, um, cause really, I mean, all your instruments are, are beautiful, but for some reason, those man, the, the, the smart mandolas, I mean, I remember the first time, the first time I ever heard anything was when I first really started getting into mandolin and, you know, I came into it via Feely and, um, reading that he used a, uh, Lawrence Smart mandola on one of his recordings. Like, Whoa, what is this? This guy must be awesome. I think that. I, a lot of the, some of that became, came from uh, me marketing or selling instruments to people like John Reichman or Chris, and those guys already had their good mandolins. And uh, there was a voice that, you know, they wanted to explore as the mandola. Um, and I think that I, I've had this sort of style of build from the, my very beginning in terms of bracing that uh, I use. Um, that I've sort of borrowed from the archtop guitar world. And that's uh, an X brace that crosses forward of the bridge, um, you know, between the bridge and the, the fingerboard, if you will. And so that a, a, a brace runs under each foot of the bridge and I can sort of modify the uh, angle of that X to influence the tone and, and some of the sort of overtone structure. Um, at least hopefully I can in a perfect world. So, I think that there was something about that recipe and the mandola early on that just clicked and, uh, and it works and it's been a pretty successful, uh, I think recipe for that, that kind of, that range of instrument. Um, I don't know if that, that's sort of <laughs> one way of looking at it. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Was there kind of a, was there a tipping point artist? Was there someone that, that you, 
built a mandolin for and then all of a sudden it seemed like you were starting to get like oh shoot there's uh, i'm getting inquiries from all <laughs> sorts all sorts of people you know i i think back to when i interviewed mike chemnitzer and he you know built uh tim o'brien one and suddenly it was like whoa tim o'brien's got this nugget mandolin you know <laughs> and he started getting all sorts of calls well, that's part of it, but part of it is also that Mike Kimmister makes exquisite mandolins. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no offense to Tim. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a funny thing about that is you, you in this business, you think, oh, I'm, I'm getting this kind of exposure, so all of a sudden I'll get some, you know, a bunch of work. And I think it's more cumulative. I, I don't. I can't say there's an artist that got something from me that turned the switch on, but um, I've just kind of plugged away at it and uh, and put my stuff out there. And like I said, I've been really fortunate to have some some great players and and people um, use them. Do you remember when when there was was there a certain point that you were like, oh, holy cow! I've got um, I've kind of got like a a list of mandolins to build here where you were like, I, this is, this is happening for me. Yeah, there was a time and it's it probably in the, I don't know, rather early two thousands or something when there was this mandolin craze going on. And, uh, I found myself with at my outfit was, you know, almost a three year waiting list. Wow. And that was nice. And it made me, you know, it made me feel good and, and my ego feel good and stuff but there was something about it that was also stressful <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can imagine I, you know I, I i love to do things like go skiing and run rivers and get out in the mountains and and uh you know that's an important part of my life and so <laughs> so you know with that said things have things are balanced out now and i don't, I don't feel uh owned by that list and and uh yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to push as hard these days either. On any, anyway. <laughs> How many were you building a year at that point when you had the three-year waiting list? I never built more than ten or twelve in a year. That's still though. That's. I mean, to someone who's never built one, to me, uh, ten or twelve seems like a very large amount of mandolins to build or instruments to build. Yeah, I mean. I in those days people weren't really using CNC technology much um anyway but that's you know I never did and never have and so that you know I think that's slows the production potential down a little bit as well what do you have a favorite part of the building process uh <laughs> yeah uh, my favorite part is really selecting the wood and uh and even up to the point where you do a lot of the rough carving and rough removal. And um, there's something about just that real not fine motor skill stuff. And you're just hogging out wood that is this amazing. The shop smells just incredible from the wood. Uh, and it's a little sad. There's a little sad part about it, too, is that when you do that, you end up with copious amounts of wood shavings on the floor. And as I sweep them up, I'm always a little apologetic that they didn't get to be part of an instrument. So. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I mean, it's a little sad because I have such respect for for the wood and, and such a love for it and almost a fetish for wood. And I mean, in, in a way that, uh, you know, you want it to all be used as much as you can. And 
like so many luthiers, I've got little boxes full of small pieces of ebony and stuff that are totally unusable. <laughs> but it's ebony, so <laughs> can't throw it away or burn it. Uh, There's a, uh, ten, is it a 10-string fan fret instrument that's on your on your uh, website there? Is that a, I can't tell if it's 10-string or if that's a four-string there. It's one of the quartets. No, it's just, it'd be a ten string. Yeah, how did you how did you go about building that? I got to play um, uh, speaking to Tim O'Brien a little bit ago, and Mike Chemnitzer. When I went to interview Steve Gilchrist, I walk in and there's Tim O'Brien, and he's got a, a ten string nugget with the fan frets, and yeah. it, as if you aren't daunted enough to play in front of Tim O'Brien, have him add a string and fan frets, and be like, here, check this out. I'm like, wow, <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's great. I talked to Mike uh, a couple times as he, as he was building that. Um, just because he'd known I'd built some of those. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's kind of an interesting story. I had known Mike Marshall uh, just through being around and stuff. And he, uh, he, oh, I guess I made him a mandola first. And, uh, and which he was pretty psyched about. And at some point he, uh, he contacted me and he told me that um, he and Edgar Meyer were touring and, and they were sitting around the, the hotel room one night and Mike was, um, playing his lore and then he'd pick up the mandola and he'd say why can't i have this you know this in both instruments and then so they they uh just thought about it and they thought well how about a fan fret you know 10 string so that the string tension issue could be <laughs> come up with uh or you know sort of solve the string tension problems with that across um those five courses of strings tuned in fifths um Anyway, so they had this idea, and he contacted me and said, can you build this? And it's like, well, I'll, I'll try. So I built the first one for him, and uh, right as it was getting done, I had sent him a photograph of it. Uh, and and the next day, I get a phone call from John McGann, who's, uh, you know, of course, teaching at Berkeley School of Music in, in uh, Boston. And, and he says he had called Mike Marshall saying, Hey, Mike, I had a dream about this instrument. And he explained this instrument. It was a 10 string with fan frets. And Mike Marshall sent him a picture of the one I sent him. He said, you mean like this? <laughs> 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 and, uh, it was kind of this wild, uh, wild event where John had envisioned this thing. So the second one I built for John and, uh, of course he's gone. People miss him dearly. Uh, and so that's the story. I, I thought that was going to be the, you know, the game changer of my career. I'd be able to, you know, just make those. But uh, turns out that they're kind of hard to play, and they're they're really hard to build. Yeah. What's the <laughs> what's the trial and error process on something like that? Like, I mean, was your first attempt successful? Yeah, it was. Wow. Except for uh, on one of the, the frets. Uh, you know, one of the frets has to be perpendicular to the center line. Does that make sense? Because they they fan, the frets fan out from that point. Yeah. Yes. And so, on the first one I built, I thought, well, the middle of the scale is the twelfth fret. That should be the the perpendicular one. But uh, it turns out that um, that makes the nut be way angled. And so, um, I'm trying to think. I, I think I've evolved it to be the seventh or ninth fret is the perpendicular one now. So that makes the bridge a little bit more angled, but the, the nut a little less angled. 
and that make it making the playability a little bit easier to, like on those upper or like on the first fret second fret yeah a little left hand the left hand makes it a little bit more playable but mm -hmm. um uh you know people like mike marshall can he could play anything and have it you know sound sound lovely so he's able to do it but on that instrument he uh he had some work done on it and i think he had someone make a new fingerboard for it that uh that perpendicular fret was you know maybe moved to the fifth fret um and i'm not sure what he uh if he uses it much anymore but he did do a recording with it um he did a record with alex hargraves and paul cohort called big trio remember <laughs> i do remember that it was a great album yeah and so he used that on got ten string on one or more of the cuts on that record as i recall yeah, that guy's a wizard, man. He's just, it's incredible. And he's got those big hands. It blows my mind every time I see him play. It's like those fingers are giant, and the he, they, way they dance over that tiny fingerboard just sounds so amazing. Yeah, his fingertips are pretty big on the ends, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, another thing I love about your instruments, too, are the, uh, the peghead inlays. Are, I mean, all the inlays are beautiful. I mean, the inlays on the neck, but the... Uh, I, I love, and I think a lot of mandolin players out there love, you know, just cool peghead inlays. I mean, you know, the flower pot traditionally is a thing, but man, oh man, some of your peg, the inlays are just beautiful. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. It's nice of you to say. Yeah, for sure, man. Now, is that something that is, it, do you come up with these ideas for the pegheads or do, or, or do people, you know, give you like, I'm thinking of this and you just kind of work it or is it like free form art where you're like, this is... I'm just going to go for this design in my head. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I don't consider myself an inlay artist at all. It's uh, <laughs> it's a, a thing, but I, some of the designs I've, I, you know, stolen from other places that I, I've seen. And, and then some of them I've sort of just worked out and, and there's one that I've used the most that I, I, I did come up with by myself and it's just sort of a vine and leaf sort of descending thing. Um, but yeah, like I say, I don't consider myself an inlay artist, but I do feel like um, like an F5 mandolin, for instance, to me, you know, putting a deco inlay on that is sort of stylistically incorrect. <laughs> sure. So something like a, something like a, a, a you know, a flower pot or a, a nice uh, vine and leaf thing, I think is appropriate. But I've I've designed. I guess I've evolved to. I kind of like simplicity. <laughs> when you when you design that, do you just do that by freehand then when you're doing the the peghead inlays? Well, no, I have um, uh, photocopies of the designs, and then I actually will cut out the the actual shape that I want out of the paper and glue it onto the pearl or abalone. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's kind of the standard way of doing that. Um, I mean, if you look at if you want to think about some amazing pearl cutting is Steve Gilchrist's um, uh, name on his headstock. <laughs> I'm so boggled by that. He's been doing that for decades. And as far as I know, what he does is he, he uh, there's a technique where you glue the pearl with the design on it somehow on the actual ebony and you cut them both at once. And then when you're done, the, uh, the pearl just falls down into the, <laughs> the whole of the ebony 
maybe I'm giving away too much uh, secret. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so when I look at that, that inlay that Steve cuts by hand, I it's, displays such a skill and patience and you know, Pearl gets really uh, fragile when it's thin like that. And anyway, kudos to Steve for uh, that bit of his amazingness. <laughs> yeah. He's something else. Do you guys ever have like big luthier get togethers? Have, has there ever been a giant meeting of the minds uh, at, at some point? Well, yeah, there's been a couple of organizations that have had sort of regular conventions, if you will. Um, there's one called the Guild of American Luthiers, and they have, every couple of years, they have a summer show. And then there's one called Asia, or it was, was called for Artisan Stringed Instrument Association, perhaps. And I'm not sure if it's still active, but I used to go to those shows, and that's where I first uh, met Steve and uh, you know, heard him speak and whatnot. So, yeah, there, there, there are that. And... Uh, you know, there's something that's really amazing about the Luthery community is it, there's a tradition of people sharing information uh, in in really lovely ways. And it's really served the craft and it's really serves, yeah, in, the instrument making in general. Um, I've even in the past, I haven't for, for a long time, but I, I contacted John Monteleone, you know, one of the giants to ask him about, hey, where did you source this? And he was kindly was, you know, gave me information and the source. And uh, so that's been a really, really lovely part of this career is just the, the sharing of information, with, which has been really accelerated even with the Internet, of course. There's that uh, Monteleone documentary that just came out, too. Have you seen that yet? I've not. I really want to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got it uh, in my queue to... Uh, to purchase online. I just haven't had a chance to, uh, to, to carve time out to, uh, <laughs> carve time out. Look at that. To, uh, <laughs> to, to watch it. That was well. unintentional by the way. <laughs> <laughs> when, um, you know, is there a mistake that you see? I would imagine, you know, luthiers being like you said, like it's, they admire each other's work a lot. That's one thing I really love when I talk to, talk to luthiers like yourself is that they always are talking about other people's, product in really high regard but i would imagine every now and again you get new builders who would bring you something and without you know obviously talking about a specific instrument or anything like that but is there a common mistake you see in new luthiers that they make that you might be able to give some advice on um you know i i guess the only thing that i would really um sort of comes to mind on that is is focusing um on the design rather than the tone and performance of the instrument. Um, and from the very beginning of when I started doing this, I, I really wanted to make tools for musicians. Um, for me, I view the music as the art and this is just a tool for, you know, the, the palette, color palette or whatever that the musician can access. And so for me, I like to, I like to listen to it. I like to pick up an instrument and, and listen to it and play it and, and then, you know, then maybe I'll look at the the miter joints on the binding or whatever. Um, but I, I think that in this music, in the these days, there's such a, a, a focus on really craftsmanship and perfect work and, and instruments that just look perfect. Um, 
I think that's great to a point, but I'm just a little creepy too. That uh, it feels a little less about the music sometimes. I really think it's great that that um, that these instruments just that sound so beautiful. And I mean, I'm looking at your pictures while I'm talking, and I'm just like, your finish work is so stellar too. I mean. How long, you know, when you when you do the finish, how long does something like that take? How, what's your what's your process on that? Because again, it it, it is just beautiful. Um, oh, thank you for saying that. I, I I like to I use a, a spirit varnish finish that I apply by French polishing, and it's kind of it's time consuming and sort of uh, you know labor intensive. Um, I like it for a couple of reasons. I, I I do think it sounds really great and um i also i don't really i'm not really after the dipped in plastic look and that that's that's not a barb to anybody but um finishes these days are so amazingly perfect on instruments and people you know the instrument buyers expect that i think to a degree um but so i i kind of want my finishes to to look protective and on there and, and even and stuff but i want them to look kind of like varnish um and the shellac finish that you know is a spirit varnish is uh it's organic uh to begin with and i think it sort of creates this just luster that is uh true to its own um start to finish for you if you were to start a mandolin build today ballparkish obviously each one's different but on average what does it take you from 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 beginning to end are you asking me how many hours it takes to make a mandolin? Or, well, yeah, not hours, I guess. But like, if you were to start one today, like you know, like months wise, you know. Okay. It, yeah. That's funny because I, I don't really even want to know how many hours it takes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I guess, like if you had a target date, like if somebody were to if somebody were to call you up and be like, "Hey, I want this um, today," what would what would be your target answer for? I could have it to you by. This well, if someone was going to if someone was going to order one today, you know, I could provide it to them probably in ten months or you know, le less than a year. But I always say that um, I like to say the rule of thumb is I can make sort of one instrument a month, depending on what they are. I could make more than that if they were A model mandolins, I think. But uh, uh, and then that's if I make three, maybe four at a time, and. Also, if I take a lot of time off to do the stuff I need to do so that I want to make instruments. So, yeah. Um, I don't know if that gives you a, a broad idea of what's going on. It really just blows my mind that, I mean, that doesn't even seem like a long time to me when I look at an instrument. They're just so beautiful. And that, they, I mean, the fact that these things sound good and look good, you know, to me, they're just like, I could look at pictures of mandolins for hours, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, you're bitten by the bug pretty hard. Yeah, like. yeah. And, and my wife can attest, I could play them for hours at stores too. <laughs> yeah, just drop me off. I'll see you, you know, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Do you have a, uh, a mandolin that you've had the chance to pick up and play that wasn't one of yours that you were just like, wow, this is... It's one of the best sounding instruments I've ever heard. Yeah, all you know, a lot of times I have, <laughs> many, many times, uh, you know, I've, uh, I'm not as, I haven't played played or picked up as many lures as many many people, but um, there's been some lures I've picked up that were, 
like holy crap moments um even in my hands uh and uh i've I've heard other instruments by by some of the makers we've talked about, Steve Gilchrist and and Mike Kimnitzer, that uh, I've been just really blown away with. Um, and so, yeah, it happens happens a lot, I think. Um, but I, I also think that um, you know you don't really know the true potential of an instrument from a, a new builder till it's you know obviously been been used a bit and played and and become what it's going to become, um, if that makes sense. So um, I think that's why some of those lures are so full of mojo. Uh, but how about you? What have you played that's been done that for you? Oh, man, there's been, again, there's like so many. Uh, um, I will say uh, Andrew Marlin, his lore, the, that is probably my favorite sounding lore I've ever played. He brought it, yeah, he brought it by IBMA, and he's like, ah, oh, I knew you were here. I thought you might want to hear this, and A, that blew my mind, but it, it really, it just, uh, Yeah, I got to check that out. I got to check that out last summer at a, a backstage at a, at a festival, and he handed it to me, and I didn't, you know, I didn't do it any justice, but uh, I love the story behind it, and uh, he's psyched about it. Yeah, yeah. And I do love, you know, the one that blows my mind is Lynn Dudenbostel's number one. That's the first uh -huh. mandolin he built. <laughs> it sounds uh. incredible, man. Wow, it, it's just got that magic in it. The amazing thing about mandolin to me is a Gilchrist doesn't sound like a nugget, doesn't sound like a duff, doesn't sound like a smart, doesn't sound like a lore. They all, I mean, anybody could pick up 10 of the you know, quote unquote, greatest sounding instruments in it. One of them is going to draw them to the, yeah. to the sound they're looking for. And it, 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 it's, it's really kind of the player and they all have unique qualities, but they all sound incredible. It's, it blows my mind. You know, that's interesting. At Wintergrass uh, Music Festival years ago, they used to have a mandolin tasting and that comprised of John Reichman sitting up on stage and, and playing the same tune <laughs> on this row of instruments. And, and you could sit there and go, yeah, that sounds great. And, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Or, you know, not so much. But the thing that you could always say is that that sounds good or, you know, average, but they sound like John Reichman. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, there a, is there a point in the process where, you know, you have to be like, oh, man, I got to start from scratch again or are you, have you gotten to the point now where it's just you, you you really know what you're doing and you know there's you've kind of got the variables covered it, you know it seems like every now and again you know you'd get a piece of wood that just you know due to mother nature or just the way things work out it just doesn't sound like you thought it was going to sound um yeah i mean i think that through the process that generally now i can i can figure that out that the wood's not what I want to use earlier on in the process. Um, although that's funny. I just built an L5 guitar, a 16 inch archtop guitar. Um, and I was carving the top and there was no, the, the top looked beautiful. And I got down and there was this weird kind of blob in the spruce that looked like it could have been associated with a knot, but I know there was no knot. <laughs> anyway, long story short, there's this little blob in the spruce and I'm, checking it out thinking, well, I, I don't, 
thinking it, I don't detect any change in the structure of the wood or whatever, and, and I'm going to use it. And so I built this L5 guitar. It, it doesn't have a buyer, so I, I don't know if I would have used it if I had built the instrument for somebody. But, but now there's this little unique blob that I've never seen before in the wood that's so localized that, uh, yeah, I left it in there. Um, yeah, I love, I, you know, and again, like imperfections like that, just to me, I mean, if the instrument sounds great, that's number one. If it's got a imperfection in it, that's kind of like the unique, like, ah, it's now it's like part of the story of the instrument to me, you know, like, yeah, look at this. And none of these have this, this is just like a weird <laughs> piece of nature. <laughs> well, and the thing about spruce also, the spruce that we use for the tops is, um, it's not a renewable resource. Um, the spruce wood with those grains were grown in forest and, you know, in the shade of forest. And that's why they grew slowly and, and have that, that quality. We, if we went to plant some spruce, you know, out now and, and the, the tree plantation, it wouldn't grow with the same character. And so with that say, said, you know, there's, going to be less and less of that old growth spruce available to luthiers and so we're going to be seeing wood that has more you know what people might have called defect um it's, it's just going to be the nature of of that wood um so uh so yeah it's uh <laughs> there is that piece i don't know i might i might have discarded that piece of wood you know 10, 15 years ago. Sure. But, uh, when you when you string one up, uh, mandolin wise, is there? Do you do you have a tune you play? Do you just tune it and kind of listen for balance, or do you have like a a specific like celebration <laughs> song of like, yeah, here we go? <laughs> um, well, a lot of the first sounds I hear of out of it are um, sounds associated with getting the setup, you know, correct, so it can, uh, you know, can play right so once you finally get it you know the bridge in the right place and the the intonation correct and and yada yada you know sometimes i i oftentimes will go for a big kind of open a chord <laughs> just because i just is the first sort of big sound uh but i i think it's kind of interesting sometimes i'll build an instrument and, and get it in tune and i'll hang it up and come back to it the next day and it'll be um you know slightly out of tune from things getting used to whatever and and sometimes i'll come back and the instruments are just perfectly in tune and uh, i might not i mean somehow i like i think that those instruments are just kind of working out better but i don't think that's really the case i think they're all finding equilibrium um yeah i don't, I don't think i answered your question at all no no that's, <laughs> i love it man it's funny you said the a that's the first thing i do on any mandolin I pick up is a A chord and a chop chord. Cause to me, like I remember the first time I played like a good instrument and I did an A chop chord on it and it like it like resonated through my entire body. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what a a good mandolin sounds like. And so that's stayed in my head forever. And I know right away, like I could look at a line of mandolins and if the A chop doesn't like blow me away right off the bat or I just put it back on and just move on to the next one. So uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's such an important sort of part of a, of mandolin's function is that quick attack of the, you know, that chop chord and, and the frequency of the A chord. I, I agree with you. It's kind of the sort of the measure or the, of that. 
And then uh, the final question I have, are you a beer drinker? I, yeah, I, I admit it. I do. Like yeah, beer. yeah, me too. Although I am, I'm doing a little dry January here to, uh, uh good for you. yeah, for your reset, make sure my pants fit again <laughs> from the, <laughs> from the holidays. But, um, do you have a favorite beer? I'm kind of a fan of the Northwest style IPAs, but, and you know, with that said that I will go not quite Northwest. There's a, a brewery in Alpine, Wyoming, small little town, uh, called melvin <laughs> and uh, uh i really like what they make um so that's maybe it's a plug that i shouldn't give or whatever no but, no uh, please do man it's yeah no plug away well <laughs> man this has been really really great talking to you i um it just just what a great vibe you have about the whole thing and and i can see why people love your instruments and you know and you know just Joe and, and Wayne both had just such great stuff to say about you and congratulations on your success. And I got to make it out to, to that area, by the way, and just maybe we can figure out some sort of mandolins and beer get together we can do out in, in that area. It'd be fun, man. I encourage you. Yeah. Come on out. And, uh, I'm, I'm, my mission right now is to, to get my Valley. I live in, uh, all excited about string band music. So, yeah. Uh, Come help do it. I'd love to do that. <laughs> Let's work it out. Well, man, hey, have a great time skiing next week. And uh, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. I'm like totally honored that you would even consider wanting to talk to me. And so um, I really appreciate it. And thank you for bridging this mandolin community from so many different directions. So good on you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. What a cool guy. Thank you so much to Lawrence for doing that. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great weekend. And to round out this podcast here, Westbound Situation, their new single from their upcoming album. If you like what you hear, head over to their Kickstarter and support this campaign. It is not cheap to record and put out music, and especially with streaming. Again, any way people listen to music is great. But if you want to support these artists and have them keep putting music out, uh, go out there and support the ones you love. And, and the guys in Westbound Situation are great guys, great players, and this is a great song. So check it out. Link in the description for the Kickstarter. Cheers, everybody.